29% Equal is a podcast celebrating significant women who have shaped how we practice architecture today. Produced by me, Sarah Ackland. I'm a practicing architect and PhD researcher studying gendered bodies in public space. So why 29% Equal? Well, the last formal survey undertaken by the ARB, or the Architects Registration Board, was in 2019. This revealed that only 29% of qualified architects are female identifying. Women are routinely excluded from the architecture profession, from the books we read and even the references and precedents that we study at university. In an effort to eliminate this erasure of women, I have asked a young architect, designer, artist or activist from Park W and some of their friends to have a discussion with a woman they feel deserves recognition, or perhaps more recognition. We ask these amazing women about their defining moments, their activism, who inspires them, the advice that they would give to their younger selves, and finally, what a more equitable city might look like. Hi, and welcome back to 29% Equal in conversation with Park W. In today's episode, Alice Brownfield, the co-chair of Park W Collective, architect at Peter Barber Architects, and the recipient of the 2021 MJ Long Prize, speaks with the acclaimed Kate McIntosh. Kate is well known for completing the famous and well-loved Dawson Heights estate before she was even 30. And in this discussion, her passion for social housing and climate justice weaves throughout. We hear about her experience of working for Lambeth Council, her inspiration that she found in Central Hill. And finally, her advice to her younger self. Don't be a shrinking violet, admit what you don't know, and don't be defensive. This podcast has been created with thanks to the RIBA Research Fund and supported by Katie Lloyd-Thomas of Newcastle University. Here's Alice and Kate. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Kate. Um, It's really wonderful to talk to you. I've been interested in your housing designs from a, a, a long time now. I think they're fantastic in the way they embody a really socially democratic spirit and also really interested in your activism, which seems to be really integral to your career and and beyond um, standing up for women's rights, working with architects against apartheid and and even in your retirement, standing up to really to neoliberalism's disintegration of the welfare state and housing. I think Tom Cordell once said that your career spans the ambition of the post-war welfare state and therefore we've so much to learn from you. So really appreciate you speaking to us today. I wanted to jump straight into the first question, which was to ask you about a defining moment for you in your career as a woman, and how have things changed? Um, Well, I'd like, first of all, to um, congratulate you, Alice, on winning the MJ Long Prize. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And I think that... uh, in many ways, your generation has got a much tougher problem to to confront than uh, than mine. In in many ways, the, the only good thing that has improved is that there are many more women in the profession. So you don't have to be fighting that particular particular battle. I don't think. But of course, travelling, you're confronted with so many different diverse influences and. Um, wonderful buildings. I think the Seinasalo Town Hall in uh, Finland, that, that's, uh, to me, out of many outstanding buildings, that's probably the most perfect of, of Altos. Alto was, and I, I think it's a pity he didn't have the nous to call his firm Alva and Aino Alto, 
rather than just our Rialto. Yes. <laughs> We've learned recently what a huge contribution she had to make. But also uh, Leverance's um, church outside uh, Stockholm is, is another building I, I would reckon to be a very, very perfect example of the sort of mixture of sophistication with something almost crude that uh, really appeals to me. <laughs> it's sophisticated in its thinking, but it's very earthbound in its realisation. Yeah, that, yeah, that's really a beautiful way of describing that building. I was really struck by how much travelling you were able to do at such a young age and interested to know how formative that was in your education because I, I know previously you've spoken about your your education at Edinburgh College of Art as being something which was quite Beaux-Arts and also quite limiting as, as a woman. Um, I think you said once that you felt you were sort of a, a foreign body in that environment and I wondered whether your travelling perhaps to Poland or to Scandinavia had being quite formative and seeing other ways of being as an architect? Yes, um, although the um, atmosphere in, in the College of Art, the School of Architecture, was um, uh, quite antipathetic for women, because it was in a School of Art, we were together with the potters, the painters, the dress designers, uh, etc. And that sort of made it more tolerable. I probably had more friends amongst the artists than I did amongst the architects. <laughs> but um, when I did my year out in Robert Matthews' office in Edinburgh, and that was a very nurturing and a reinforcing office to go into. Of course, he'd been the head of the LCC Architects Department and then come return to his roots in Scotland. He'd actually studied in the same school that I was at. Uh, and I, I learned only recently, having read his um, biography, that he uh, firmly believed that architecture was equally, women were equally suited to architecture as men. So unsurprisingly, there were uh, quite a few women in, in the office. And um, that, that felt very reassuring. And then after fourth year in my uh, summer vacation, I, I did a few weeks in the LCC architects department. Um, they, they'd actually sent someone up to the school to do some recruiting. Uh, and uh, there were quite a few women there including Polish women. Uh, in fact, it was a very international department. Um, so that uh, there, there was one very noted uh, feminist, actually, uh, who belonged to the group that I was in, although she was away on, mat on maternity leave, but she did pop in. So then I, I began to feel less of a foreigner, as it were. <laughs> then that, of course, was one of the reasons I went amongst many to Scandinavia was that I knew full well that um, there were much more 
a higher proportion of women architects uh, and quite a few married couples in practice together there so that it, it wasn't anything extraordinary to be a woman architect. And uh, I wanted to just forget about the whole sexual politics thing and just be an architect for a change. And that was, that was very liberating indeed. It would be really interesting to hear a bit more perhaps about that ethos in Scandinavia and the, you know, the ethos of social democracy and social responsibility it really feels like that's embedded in so much of your housing work. You know, this idea about how, as an architect, we can use design to create the potential for mixed communities, for families of different sizes to be living right next to each other. And I love in Dawson's Heights how you've used the split level to mean that you can you condense really the circulation to every three floors or so, so that you're bringing people into mm. a closer space. And I just wondered whether that your, your time in Scandinavia had been quite instrumental to your design approach. Well, yes, the sort of egalitarian ethos of Scandinavia, which is much stronger, I must, must say, in Scotland than it is down here. But uh, that was something that uh, was deeply rooted in my psyche from... My parents were, were both socialists, and my father was the head of, um, he was the construction manager for Scottish Special Housing Association, which um, were, operated from the highlands and islands right down to the borders. And the whole uh, purpose of that organization, which was unique to Scotland as far as I'm aware, was to raise the general level of of um, housing. Uh, housing in Glasgow, in particular, was absolutely the worst in Europe, and consequently, very terrible diseases, infant mortality, um, death in childbirth, and all, all that. Uh, the horrors of poverty. So my my father was absolutely dedicated to that um, objective. And um, he would, once I started my course, he sometimes would take me on site. So um, that was uh, very, very good to uh, not feel this was peculiar or strange to put your wellies in and talk <laughs> around the site. <laughs> it's really lovely to hear how these slightly earlier experiences started to really become formative and... I also think really inspiring for people who are just starting out now, who are just graduating, because looking back at what you were doing around that time, it really seems as though you were saying, I'm dissatisfied with with X and Y, and I'm going to find Z, which is what I'm interested in doing. And you, you know, you really seem to have sought out these opportunities, which, you know, for example, I think you had British Council funding to go to Poland, for example, and Mm -hmm. That sort of determination to think I'm not, you know, I, I want to do something different to what I can get from this situation, I think is really inspiring. And hopefully we might have more accessible ways of doing that now as well. I, th I mean, I know the answer is one already, really, but is to ask you if you see activism in your work. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The, the, the activism seemed to um, 
be something in, embedded in my career from an early age. That's to say, it's, it started as a student. I, um, together with one other, one other student, we launched a little campaign in Edinburgh, which at that time was very, very conservative, or as they uh, said it was unionist. And the Lord Provost was um, Miller, head of Miller Construction. He started in Edinburgh, and the uh, Architectural Review was running this series of articles they called Subtopia Attack, which was Gordon Cullen and um, a journalist uh, pointing out how ugly most suburban sprawl was. I, I, I took A on, uh, I thought it was a wonderful magazine. And um, Edinburgh, all, all the new housing, almost all the new housing was um, just that bungaloid growth sprawling around on these, these wonderful landscapes, taking absolutely no account of the contours or, you know, it's just a standard product plonked down, could have been dropped from a helicopter. And at the same time, Roehampton was being published in the mags. So together with my friend, we got together and we said, we'll have our own little subtopia attack campaign here in Edinburgh. And um, I wrote to the LCC Architects Department and got some photographs of Roehampton, particularly the Corby blocks, actually. And um, wrote to the <laughs> manager of what was then the Caledonian Station in the West End of Princess Street and said, we want to put up uh, an architectural exhibition. So um, <laughs> we, we got these uh, exhibition panels. I can't remember where we got them from, but we had to hire them, I think, and uh, put up th this contrasting images of these uh, this bungaloid growth with horrible concrete lamp posts, and you get the scene far far too much uh, space given over to tarmac. And, and Roehampton, surrounded by trees and parkland and, and so on. So, which would you prefer? <laughs> and we had a petition. I, I've still got uh, at least one copy of this petition. So, of course, it wasn't long before the balloon went up. And I got this call from the manager of Caledonian Station saying, this isn't what we thought we were going to get. <laughs> you must take it down forthwith. So I said, oh, no, no, we're not, not going to do that. Uh, we've got a, an agreement with you. We've got a contract. It's to stay there for two weeks. So anyway, this toing and froing went on, and, and then it got in the press, and I was in, interviewed on Scottish television. <laughs> <laughs> All this was great fun as far as I was concerned. <laughs> yeah, wow. And uh, we, we, did, we did take it down early, but uh, that was my baptism of fire. Uh, and then I must tell a, another a little concluding anecdote to this was that, um, and this was after I no longer were working at Robert Matthews' office, I got a, a telephone call from Pat Nutchins, who was really the one who was running the course in the university. And he said, did 
you incur any expenses in putting up this exhibition? I said, yes, well, we had some modest expenses. Uh, and I told him how much it was. And he said, well, well, meet me um, at the end of Alva Street. I shall be in a car at such and such a time. And I have something for you. And oh, wonderful. it was a check from Robert, Robert Matthew, to oh, wow. reimburse us. Wow. And he said, on strict condition that you never tell anyone. <laughs> but as they're both dead, I think I can blow, <laughs> blow the confidentiality. Did you have to do a special handshake through the window as you took the check? Or... <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> that's, a, that's a brilliant story. That's fantastic. <laughs> I, lo- I mean, I feel, I feel like you're... Your, there's so much to all of your adventures and your experiences that have a sort of brilliantly humorous but just wonderful quality to them about just people kind of working out the best way to achieve something together. And I, I love that story so much that about the sort of slight... Not, it's not deceit, is it? Because you are doing an architectural ex- exhibition that's kind of covert, yes. covert in a way. And I also think it's a really brilliant example for us all to see you know as architects that we have agency and i wonder whether you think it would be accurate to say that your activism isn't really a that you don't see it as a bolt-on as a separate thing but you see it as an integral part of your being an architect you know that it's our responsibility to have those those conversations and i I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about your activism whilst practicing as well because I think when we're students, we perhaps have less to lose and, and we're more empowered mm. to speak our minds. And then particularly now mm. when so many people, you know, the majority of architects are now working in private practice and it can mm. be harder mm. sometimes to engage in the sort of activism that you might want to. And I, I'd be really interested to hear, I know you were on the RBA Council for, for a bit and I was listening to some of your recordings in the British Library Archive where you were talking about the work that you were doing with architects against apartheid and architects for peace. And I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your work in practice and and whether you ever had to make a tricky decision about the impact of that on your career, for example. Yes, I think in local government you had more freedom. That was until the days of Thatcher when, of course, she clamped down and said that... uh, Architects who are in public employment must not engage in political activity. Yep. I didn't know that happened. Wow. <laughs> yes, yes. It's real censorship, but really. When I was, uh, I did a very short stint in Arab Associates, which was, was a very fine office to work in in many, many ways. Over Arab, of course, had uh, laid down a sort of mission statement as to what the ethical parameters should be. Um, But when I joined the office, I didn't realize that they had a considerable practice in Cape Town. And then, of course, when I got involved with Architects Against Apartheid, I realized I've got a conflict here. Anyway, it was solved for me because when I w- was leaving Lambeth, I'd also applied to Arnsberton and Coralek 
and they'd written back saying, we, we haven't got any work at the moment, but we'll put you on file. And I thought, oh, oh I've heard that story before. But uh, anyway, I'd only been in uh, um, the uh, Arab office for about a year when I got a letter from them saying, a job's now come up. Now, Peter Ahrens was also on this committee of Architects Against Apartheid. So I went to see Philip Dowson. We had a long conversation and uh, I explained my, or made my excuses, you might say. <laughs> uh, and um, he was uh, trying to persuade me that um, you couldn't be too picky and choosy as an architect and that the uh, Soviet bloc had uh, actually killed more people since the end of World War Two than they had lost during the war. I said, yes, but we have no particular connections or responsibility for the Soviet Union, whereas we are heavily involved with South Africa. We almost created South Africa. So anyway, that was that. He's a very nice man. I didn't want to fall out with him. <laughs> so uh, then, then I moved to ABK. Where they they were they were very generous in allowing me to continue with RIBA activities and all, all that stuff. And I think you've talked before about that office being a much more democratic place to work as well. Um, that it that you enjoyed the environment where you were eating lunch together and those sorts of things as well. Yes, yes. But both the offices uh, at that time went to a lot of trouble to keep everyone informed and not allow the bureaucracy to become heavy. So that one of the rules in ABK is we do not want any memos. <laughs> no memos at all. Those memos were rife in local government. Yeah, translate to emails now or meetings. And I mean, even in your retirement, you are so active in it's preserving the legacy of the amazing socially ambitious projects which came out of the 60s and 70s. And I, I just wondered if you might say a bit about how, in your opinion, architects might do more to recognise the value of that legacy and to help protect it. Yes, that's a very tough one. Well, of course, um, my main focus has been on Lambeth, which um, is, uh, it's difficult to choose which is the worst local authority, but Lambeth must be well up there. It's difficult to decide whether it's incompetence or corruption or a mixture of both. It probably is a mixture of both. Absolute unbelievable chaos in their handling of the supposed refurbishment of Liam Court Road, that's now Macintosh Court, whereby they've actually spent over £2 million creating defects that were not there before. The main focus of this work was to be rerunning the heating and hot water system, which uh, very few people had any problems with before, but now breaks down regularly at least every two months, in the middle of the winter, any time. And, of course, I've 
got no particular purchase. Uh, there's no reason why they have to listen to me. But I have, free gratis and for nothing, been offering them technical advice since they've managed to lose all the technical drawings of the building. They come to me and ask me if I've got records of where the drains run, for instance. All they've got to do is drop a mini camera down a manhole and they can find out. But um, that's quite beyond them. Well, then, of course, it, it spilled out into trying to save Central Hill. And there were six very good housing schemes created during the Hollenby years, now on a long list for demolition. Cressingham Gardens, the um, residents have brought actions for um, judicial review successfully twice. So now what Lambeth is resorting to is uh, what they call salami slicing, so that they just demolish a building at a time. Quite incredibly awful. And then, of course, they've added to this list of demolition the um, International House, which is a small office tower, which is absolutely integral to Brixton Recreation Centre, which was designed by my late partner, George Finch, was listed grade two in 2016, I think it was. But uh, unfortunately, they omitted the tower. Then Lambeth at that time wanted to demolish the whole blank shoot. Uh, now, now they're saying, oh, yes, we greatly value Brixton Recreation Centre, a marvellous facility, and it adds greatly to the character of Brixton, da-da-da-da-da. But this tower, uh, we, we think we can pull it down and um, make some more money out of the site. Well, of course, it's a very, very restricted little site, and the only way they'll make money is by building a tower ever so much taller. It's only... Um, 12 stories high, I think, International House. So anyway, we've got a, a campaign running for that as well. And, and that building's really integral to the surrounding, isn't it, really? It's conceived as being part of that whole. It's so integral that the um, plant room, which serves both the recreation centre and for a, a swimming pool, etc., you need an awful lot of plant. And... Uh, also International House and the, the some of the supports for International House actually go through this plant room. So there's no way they could demolish International House without relocating the plant, which would be a pretty expensive thing to do. Also, at the moment, they've let it to a bunch of um, creatives and startups, including architects, who are making very good use of the building and uh, add to the vitality and interest of, of Brixton. So why they need to disturb all that? I've... They're supposedly a Labour-controlled authority, but they might as well have Boris Johnson in charge for the extent to which they deviate from government policy. You know, it's, it's really interesting to understand the very different contexts as well, you know, socially and, and politically from when you first started out designing social housing where there was this grand social ambition, there was this real fundamental belief, it seems, at all levels that 
it's not radical to provide good quality housing for everyone. It's just bare minimum that we should be doing to, to now where it feels so often that if you, you know, if you can't make decent money from it, it's not worth doing everything is capitalized. And one of the things I think would be really interesting to hear your opinion on is how, as architects, we might influence that other than really important work in getting involved in campaigns to trying to save some of these buildings. But for example, an, another way which I think has been very inspiring, which I've personally found very inspiring in the last few years, has been the emergence of public practice, co-founded by Pooja Agrawal and Finn Williams, which is starting to try to put architects back into local authorities and design roles mm. or urban design officer roles. And mm. having seen a few friends go through that program too, and starting to be able to have these design conversations back in local authorities and i wondered what you thought of that too and whether that that might help take us in, a, in the right direction it's um, a good stab at improving matters um, as you well know from the two schemes you showed in your mj long presentation but uh, the snag comes in um, trying to evade the requirement for right to buy and uh, in setting up these arm's length companies uh, in order to precisely make that evasion the company has to then find other ways of uh, raising money borrowing but uh, at the moment of course interest rates are very low so it seems to me that uh, that's a per well, in fact, of course, you know from experience that it is perfectly possible to do it, but it's a struggle. And it really is so utterly perverse that it has to be a struggle when there's an obvious glaring need out there and government puts every obstacle they can muster in the way of fulfilling it, it would seem. So the short-termism of the present regime and, and the Blair government wasn't all that much better, is um, just mind-boggling. And if you compare it again with Scandinavia, uh, in Norway they have a government department which is responsible for examining all legislation which comes before their government as to what its impact will be on the rising generation. And if it's a negative impact, it has to be reconsidered. Now, that that is genuinely thinking long-term and thinking, where are we headed? What is going to be the future for the next generation that's going to come along? Instead of just we've we've got to make a quick buck now and then run away and leave someone else to clear up the mess. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear you say that about Norway. And um, I was reading recently about Vienna as well as a city, which um, at the same time as the UK was building, you know, hundreds of thousands of social homes right. post World War Two. They were also building public housing. And the difference is that they didn't have 
the what we had in the 80s, which was the starting of, of all of that being sold off. And so I think they still mm. have now nearly two thirds of their population who live in mm. state subsidized mm. housing. Mm. And sometimes it's really hard to see how we will reverse that um, and how we will come out of this situation and return to um, a society where we do provide good quality housing for everyone. So it's really nice to hear these examples of, of people who are at the level of policymakers reviewing schemes and driving that longer term view rather than just being such a short term thing. So maybe your example there gives us a bit of hope that if we can create similar roles in England, I know there's in Wales, they have a commissioner for future generations who has a similar role. I think her name's Sophie Howe. Although how effective that role could be will be entirely dependent on those who are, you know, making the remit of that, I guess. Your um, discussions about Lambeth lead quite nicely on to my third question, which is um, to ask you to tell us a bit about a woman who you feel has been overlooked perhaps a bit, who has inspired your work. I think um, when we spoke previously, you had mentioned Rosemary Steinstead. Schoenstatt, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, she was about... Uh... 12 years my senior and um, she was the first woman team leader in the LCC architects department promoted by Robert Matthew so she was um, responsible for the first phase of Roehampton and then uh, she was headhunted by Ted Hollenby to be a group leader together with George Finch and Don Easter um, when he got the job as chief architect and planner for Lambeth in uh, 64. Some of the work she did in Lambeth has already been demolished. There was a very fine sheltered housing that I was advised to go and look at when I was asked to um, carry out the design for the sheltered housing at Liam Court Road, which was on a very tight site and it was two-storey with a top-lit gallery running down the middle. Very fine quality of detailing, I remember. And then um, Central Hill, which of course is now under threat, that was the last job she did before she left Lambeth. She had left Lambeth by the the time I joined, so I, I didn't actually meet her until later. And Central Hill was under construction about contemporaneously with Dawson's Heights. And the sites indeed have some similarities in that the the ground conditions on both are pretty unstable. So her piling was not quite so deep as mine. And the uh, engineer she had on that job was Ted Happold, at that time part of, of Arabs. So... Yes, the the other difference is that um, although it's on a hill, it only has a view to the north. It doesn't have a view to the south. The gradients, I I compare it with Branch Hill, you know, the the one that uh, Camden did on on the edge of um, uh, Hampstead Heath. 
the the gradients, the maximum gradient at Central Hill is is steeper than than Branch Hill, and of course it's a much bigger scheme than Branch Hill, but it predates Branch Hill. So I think, if anything, Camden learned something from Rosemary, not vice versa, and um, it was put in for listing about. 2012, I think, um, and turned down. I read the reports and it was as though Historic England had two different people writing it because the first section was all full of praise and a good analysis of the objectives and how they'd been skillfully met. And then the second half was pulling it apart and saying there was nothing uh, particularly innovative about it. And above all, that um, it w- was following Camden rather than that uh, it was implementing ideas that had been developed in Camden. But it, in my view, it, it, they twisted it around. It was the other way about. But in any case, it's a fallacious argument. You look at the quality of the scheme as such, um, otherwise, you'd say, well, we don't need Lincoln Cathedral because we've already got Salisbury, so we can pull <laughs> Lincoln down, can't we? <laughs> and so were you, were you aware of Rosemary's work? Even though you were at different boroughs, were you aware at the time of each other's work? How was that? Well, yes, once I got to Lambeth, then, as I say, I went to see this sheltered housing scheme of hers and and people talked about her, you know, as an outstanding woman architect. I mean, it really sounds like she was a really remarkable woman, let alone architectural designer, um, to to be in the positions that she was in, leading those sorts of schemes. It really seems like she was a pioneer Yes, uh, in yes. what she was doing. And she also had gone to um, Sweden. And that's how she came to have the name Schoenstedt, because she married a a Swede, which is not surprising because when she graduated, she first of all worked in Birmingham, as I know, because uh, we set up this meeting, that's the the Women Architects Group at the RIBA, for uh, role models to explain to the rising generation of young women how it was and how you could... um, make your way and so on. She was one of the role models we had together with Jane Drew and Pat Hindale. And um, she recounted that in her first job at Birmingham, she found out that she was being given exactly half the pay of a colleague who was doing the equivalent work. So some things have improved. Yes. I I mean, I guess that's... That's really shocking, but it's also important to cite that in a context of, you know, that was at a time still before, you know, it was before the 1975 Sex, Sex Discrimination Act. It was before even, you know, those acts which started to make it illegal to discriminate against women in employment. And we, and even then, 2010 with the Equality Act, this was well before that. So mm. really remarkable. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, hopefully, I mean, one of the things that we're advocating for at Part W is for there to be a better um, gender pay gap reporting and better analysis in general of women in architecture so that we can work out what the issues are in terms of retention, mm-hmm. 
and equal pay. And it's a real shame. I personally feel like it's a real shame that in the last year that the government has put a pause on compulsory gender pay gap reporting. It really does feel nonsensical to me. Well, yes, now that um, we've left the EU, we've really got to watch this space because um, a lot of this legislation, which was helpful to women, came in through complying with EU regulations. And with the track record of this government, I wouldn't be at all surprised if they have a go at withdrawing paid maternity leave, for instance. Yes. Yes. And I I hadn't even realised until the other day that actually statutory maternity leave was only brought in in the the late 80s. So it's it's coming under attack, having only really ever been established. In local government, it was um, introduced in the late... 60s, so I benefited from it. 69, I think it was brought in. It was then f- fairly minimal, but it, it was just made all the difference. They had to keep your job open for you. Whereas now I read that um, already women, they find a pretext to sack them once they announce that they're pregnant. And they have to sign a non-disclosure agreement under duress, I presume, in order to get um, three months' salary when they leave. Yeah, we hear sort of anecdotally similar tales, and one of the challenging things is to to find who doing the best practice and to celebrate them. And for example, one of the things that we have discussed at Part W before is when you're looking for a new job, does the company advertise what its parental leave policies are, for example? No, you have to risk asking that in your interview. And actually having these conversations about making these policies clearer, more transparent, be really influential, not just for women, but for men as well. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And I remember meeting you uh, in the offices in Peter Barber Architects once, and uh, you had a, a meeting with Pete, and he said, um, do you mind if I get Alice because she's... She thinks the world of you. And so we came down and met you, which was fantastic, which was really <laughs> lovely. And and you had a meeting about, I think, which was pr- primarily about housing. And despite that, I told you about Part W and what we were working on. You reached into your handbag and got out this sort of whole host of paperwork, which was researching women in architecture and, and had catalogued the sort of progress that had been made and, and where it had stalled. And it's, it's really remarkable how much work you have done for women in architecture. And I think I just wanted to sort of thank you, really, because I, I read in an interview with you a while ago that you'd said, no designer is just one person deep. You're all standing on the shoulders of those who've come before you. And, um, you know, I certainly feel that way about you. And it's really nice to hear you talk about Rosemary in that same way, too. And this sort of appreciation that we're all just sort of picking up where the other ones left off gradually hopefully making change yes this brings us nicely to the fourth question which is to talk about what advice you might have given your younger self well it's very difficult to build up your self-belief in um in a hostile environment i would advise 
uh, actually, I generally generally did follow this advice, although I um, worked my way around to it gradually, is seek out the best officers. Don't say, oh, I... I don't know, don't know that I'm worthy, you know, don't be a shrinking violet. Seek out the best, because in the best offices, you will meet confident people who will not be petty-minded enough to try and take you down. And don't be afraid to ask when you don't know. If people are petty-minded enough to say, oh, you're supposed to be at this stage, uh, you're supposed to know that already, then you're in the wrong environment. You know, they should be generous enough to say, I'm being complimented here to um, this this young upcoming person, realize I know more than they do. So don't be too defensive. And if you get criticism, don't automatically reject it or feel personally wounded because it, even though it may be put across in a destructive way, the, there may be a little grain of cru- truth in it. And, and if you pick on that and you, as, as valid and you come back with a solution, then you win respect. Yeah. And it's, it would be really interesting to hear, you know, you, you, were, you were fairly young when you started in, at Southwark. And it's really remarkable to situate ourselves in that context of having this very sort of huge site, very complicated site, immensely complicated. I think you had like 30 meter deep piles or something, didn't you? It was incredibly complicated. And you're in your mid to late 20s. And um, I think it was it was a competition in how? An internal competition. That's right. And and I, I wondered when you were talking about what advice you might give to your younger self and I I thought you must have had so much of that conviction already or had to muster it somehow in those situations where you're presenting against two others you know as a relatively young architect. Yes I suppose (laughs) it's the foolhardiness of youth in a way (laughs) (laughs) you believe you're indestructible and uh, you've got very little to lose anyway. (laughs) <laughs> so go for it <laughs> and, and you always seem to have a critical mind as well which I think is quite a good lesson for for us all because your Dawson's Height design seemed to seem to counter the way in which LCC were arranging housing with putting smaller family units up high and larger family units elsewhere and it seems remarkable looking back at that time that you were you were critical and you know enough to say I think we can do this another way. Um, mm. Well, I, I was very admiring of Darbon and Dark's um, Lillington Gardens scheme, uh, and the it, it was particularly the um, very muscular modelling of of those uh, blocks and the. Tremendous sensitivity with which they relate to the church, the listed church. Um, I didn't have anything of, of, of that nature, but um, of course, it's it's also the Scandinavian influence where you have to respond to the topography and respond to the 
countryside uh, uh, around. And um, when I arrived at Southwark, the chap who was working on the scheme had come out of the LCC, and he was proposing that the usual uh, standard solution that was around then of, of mixed development of three tar blocks, which uh, <laughs> um, I think the chief architect realized was perhaps not the best way to handle this very special site. And then a third party arrived. It was actually someone I'd met in the um, Matthews office in Edinburgh. And he proposed a high density, low rise, hugging the contours, rather like Central Hill. But of course, the foundation cost of that would have been phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. So that combination of, of, uh, of things, plus the, uh, the social ambition to um, try and achieve a, uh, a concentration of different f sized families, all using the same access way, that evolved into the solution that is there, thankfully, now after 50 plus years. <laughs> it seems as though you, have, you still have a really strong connection with the people who are, who are living in those homes as well. I mean, you know, Liam Court was renamed after you, which must be a really, must be potentially, you know, more important than any architectural award or anything like that, that you're, you're hearing from people who are living there who are saying this really works and it's, it's really fantastic to live well, here. Well, that, that's the most... Um, heartwarming and spirit lifting experience any architect can have is to return to an old job and be welcomed <laughs> and and thanked and praised because you never know what sort of reception you're going to get and then you feel I have not lived in vain <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that actually really nicely leads on to our final question, which is to ask, what do you think an equitable city looks like? Well, first of all, you have to suppress the car. And only in that way can it be safer for children, mums with buggies, elderly people, of whom, of course, there's an increasing number, and uh, wheelchair users, all, all of that. But that doesn't mean it um, is low density. Uh, quite the reverse. You need an intensity in order to support all the facilities that make a city into a city. Uh, and public transport is one of them, of course so that uh, things are within walking distance. Look at Amsterdam, look at Copenhagen, look at uh, Oslo. You know, the Scandinavians get it right. <laughs> yeah, let's all move to Scandinavia. <laughs> yes. And also, I mean, also even um, the Parisian mayor, um, and mm. Hidalgo, has committed to removing half of the car parking spaces in the yes. city in yes. her term, which I think is you know, a really yes. good precedent for this, us in London. This 15-minute measure of um, 
everything you need should be within 15-minute travel distance, not by car. <laughs> That's a very good rule. <laughs> and um, I wondered whether you, th you think that equitable design is as much about the process of design as it is the outcome. And by that I mean, do you think it's, it's essential that we adopt more collaborative practices, that we are listening to voices which we might not otherwise hear from, that we might miss out on that knowledge? Yes, definitely. The method of procurement is, is uh, germane. And um, I've, um, I, I should have mentioned Vauban uh, also as a, an equitable city. Um, and land is fundamental to all these questions in, uh, in every sense of the word. And of course, land and the control of the land is a necessary prerequisite to any human activity. And uh, this is at the base of, base of the ever-increasing inequality in UK that since um, 1979, 50% of the land that was then in public ownership has been privatised. And that is the most deliberate government policy, which... Um, is absolutely toxic. Now, in the case of Vauban, in Germany, they have a law that wherever any publicly owned land becomes surplus to that particular requirement, it must be, first of all, offered locally. And this site, which was former military land, uh, is on the edge of Freiburg, was um, surplus to requirement. And um, there were three pre-existing housing cooperatives which were looking to build. All of them shared the ethos that they wanted to be build as sustainably as possible. And they got together, put in a bid, and won the site. So the so over 20,000 dwellings and it has a um, a central spine where the commercial and uh, business and uh, office development is. And there's a rapid transit lorry, tro uh, trolleybus route runs down that, which connects to the centre of Freiburg. But no parking, no private parking is allowed within the residential areas. You're allowed to deliver and drop off, but not to park. There are parking houses around the perimeter of the whole development. But as people have moved in, so the car ownership has dropped. People find they don't need a car. They can cycle, they can walk, they can use the public transport. And consequently, the whole... On the, the, um, Mandatory traffic speeds are very, very low. So within the, the uh, uh, housing areas, they can only go walking speed. 
So consequently, it's very, very safe for children. Children can wander around everywhere. And the uh, play spaces are not fenced off. They're just part of the general environment. If it's good for children, it's good for women, and then it'll be good for men. It's good for everyone. Definitely. And hearing you talk about those examples makes me wonder whether we should see housing as infrastructure, or at least part of what we identify as infrastructure. We talk a lot about, as a society, we talk a lot about transport and we have big budgets going into building highways and occasionally Mm. going into public Mm. transport. Um, Mm. But whether it it seems when you talk about housing that you're, it's so integral to the infrastructure and the way that we see society that it becomes, you, you can't talk about housing without thinking about the type of city that you live in. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's if you read um, Danny Dawling's book, All That Is Solid, the great um, housing disaster, he reckons that provision of decent shelter is the most fundamental starting point for creating a healthy society, because until you've got somewhere secure to live, you can't even begin to think about maintaining your health, maintaining your education, maintaining your working life, because you're not settled. Yes, completely, completely. And and that was plainly realised uh, already after the First World War, when they found, once they'd got conscription going, they were having to turn so many recruits away because their health was so appalling. And someone, I can't remember who, said you can't expect to get A-class troops out of D-class housing areas. Yeah, it's it's the fundamental thing, isn't it, that without good quality home, nothing else can really fall into place. And I think that's been really exacerbated, or, or, or rather it's come into stark contrast this last year, particularly that Mm. life is impossibly in equal and so much harder for those who have, who don't have access to good quality housing to, Mm. to clean air, to um, daylight, uh, to green space, to outdoor space. Um, Mm -hmm. And the the way the COVID, um, death rate has hit hardest in the poorest areas is is the shines a spotlight into this question of inequality and uh, the uh, below any reasonable standard yeah provision that so many people have to suffer especially of course the bain community yes we can't protect yeah and we we can't hide from that we have to be enacting on that and I, I almost feel as though social housing needs it almost needs some PR which I'd hate the phrase but it almost needs a campaign which reminds people of the importance of this and the responsibility of the state to do it and you know my my dad grew up in social housing and when he was growing up it was quite commonplace to live in a council yeah. rented home and yeah. now it's not commonplace and there's a huge stigma attached to it and it feels like we need that critical mass again 
which will yes. you know which could potentially then grow and grow and grow mm-hmm. but um i wanted to sort of just end the interview by saying something which struck me recently there's a project a theoretical project which peter barber did in our office a few years ago which is called a draft for a decent neighborhood and it came about because pete had been reading lewis mumford's book culture of cities mm. which i think was written in the 1930s but that that may be wrong i'd need to double check and in in it lewis mumford writes that as a society we see relationships and characteristics and these sort of interpersonal elements as abstractions whereas they're actually realities and we treat capital and credit as though they are realities when they're actually Mm. abstractions and he Mm. says as a result of this architects have never been able to design even a rough draft for a decent neighborhood and what I find really reassuring is that when I look at your projects I look at Dawson's Heights and Liam Court and many of your primary school projects I I feel as though they're grounded in those true realities Um, and so they offer us hope as architects even working in a very different context that we have as architects the creativity and the agency to to bring about that focus in our work so I want to thank you for being so inspiring for us all. Thank you, that's such a lovely thing. (laughs) I think Mumford was the one who wrote, cities should be for friends and lovers to meet, (laughs) not for private gain and public squalor. That's such a lovely quote to end on. Thanks for listening to 29% Equal in conversation with Part W. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. This podcast has been created with thanks to the RIBA Research Fund and supported by Katie Lloyd-Thomas of Newcastle University. Please subscribe to stay updated.